My name's Paul Bartlett, and I'm a senior correspondent at Sea Trade Maritime News. Today, I'm talking to Thomas Campbell, General Manager at Clyde Marine, a leading supplier of seagoing personnel. Labour is one of shipping's most important challenges today, and we will be discussing some of the key issues faced by owners and operators, and how Clyde Marine, as a leading supplier of maritime labour, is tackling these issues. Thomas, for the benefit of everybody listening to this podcast, please can you first explain the corporate structure of Northern Marine and where Clyde Marine fits into the group? Hi, Paul. Yep, thanks very much for having me. And yeah, I'd love to. So Clyde Marine Training is a training provider, like you said in in the introduction, we we supply uh, approximately 800 cadets to the UK Cadetship Programme. We have an office in Glasgow, which is, is within the Northern Marine Group offices. Northern Marine Group being our parent company, and then their ultimate parent is Dena AB, which is a Swedish company. We've recently been bought by the group, so we, we joined in 2016. And yeah, they, as I say, the, the company now provides all of the training for cradle to grave training, cadetship, all the way through to senior officer certification and all of the short course training in between. And, and also more recently, more advanced training, such as, as degrees and, 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 and um, further competency training. Right. As a standard group company, your first priority is presumably recruitment for the group. However, I believe that most of your work involves providing seagoing labour resources for third parties. Please, can you explain how you balance these business objectives? That's a great question. All of the trainees that we recruit, we go out to the companies. There's, there's about 40 shipping companies in there. We go out to them well in advance of any recruitment phases. Those happen twice a year. So we recruit every January, February, and every August, September for, for intakes of, of cadets. We start working with the companies six, seven months before. We get an understanding of their requirements. And at that time, we also speak to Northern Marine as a client company. But like you say, as, as a parent company as well, we get all of the requirements from each of those companies. And from there, we start to work on how many numbers of trainees that we have to recruit. Balancing the third party clients against the internal clients is actually not that difficult. We give the cadets the choice of where they would like to study and what they would like to study. So when it comes to placing a cadet with a particular company, it's, um, it's actually down to the cadet. The, the cadet makes the choice of where they would like to go and study around the UK. They make the choice of, of which company they would like to study with, and then we put them forward for an interview with, with that organisation. So some cadets we may choose to go and study with, with Northern Marine, but others will choose from uh, many of the, the other 39 clients that are in there. So it's actually it's very much cadet-driven, and, and that makes it quite easy for us to place the person with the company that they are most likely to succeed with. Right, I see. Okay, thanks. Now, there's a global shortage of seafarers, which has worsened since COVID. Please, can you explain what impact this is having on Clyde Marine and the recruitment measures you're taking to encourage more young people to take up a career at sea? Yeah, I think the impact that it's having is the demand for trainees has increased. So we are seeing larger numbers being requested from our client companies as they look to train more and more cadets to supply their future seafarer needs. It's obviously a hugely beneficial way to do it. If you train a cadet, you have them in your 
organization as a trainee for three years that allows you to give them that sense of your corporate culture and your values and things like that so companies are seen as a really positive way to have a pipeline of people coming through and it's predictable because you've got that three-year lead-in trying to make sure that we can then meet those numbers and actually achieve the recruitment targets is when it becomes very difficult because there's no real change no, no single change that we can make in the recruitment process that will result in, in much larger numbers. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We try to be very specific with who we recruit for a cadetship. You want somebody that understands the career, understands the challenges that a career like this has, is prepared for the commitment that it takes and the lifestyle, because it is you know, beyond a career. It's, it's very much a lifestyle choice. There's, um, there's a, a massive commitment from you personally. So on the recruitment side, we're trying to do a lot more to market and, and advertise not only the industry as a whole, but what the cadetship is and, and what the training is, so that when people do come in, they're not completely blindsided by it. And, and we do have a real issue, especially in the UK with sea blindness, but we, we do see that in other countries that we train cadets as well, trying to make sure that the industry is thought of and, and well seen is, is, is very, very difficult. And, and the UK is the one that we focus on because it's where our largest operation is. But in the UK, you're never more than 70 odd miles from the coast, yet the awareness of our industry is, is, is minuscule. It's a big challenge. It's something that we do invest heavily in to try and make sure that we get that presence, that marketing out there. And um, we're, we're slowly working through it because, as I say, you want, you want the right person. The other really interesting aspect there is if you go and ask the new like AI chat GPT or one of the new ones that's come out bad or, or, or whatever you get this if you ask the, the system so purely based on what it can find on the internet what is the reputation of the maritime industry it comes back with some really stark results around the way that we treat the labor force the safety issues the environmental issues and if you look to the news all that we see are the the really negative stories quite often we don't shout about the success of our industry you see the bad things, you see that a vessel got stuck across the Suez Canal, or you see that a company has let go hundreds of people without due process. You don't see all of the amazing opportunities that the industry offers. You don't see the 99% of world cargo moving around in these vessels, mainly very safely, very competently. So trying to get a wholesale shift in what we talk about in our industry, the positive aspects, is really what we need across the board. Any company, anybody in our industry, anytime you're talking about it, I'm not saying don't be realistic, but I'm saying exactly be realistic, talk about those good things, talk about what actually happens because it's a very, very positive industry, a very, very powerful one, and it's as it interesting and exciting. So, you know, talk about that. Yeah, I hear what you say, but the scale of the labor challenge is undoubted. And for many young people, an isolated and often offline existence without access to the internet or social media is really hard to uh, to imagine. How can you tackle these issues? Yeah, it is really difficult. It's a decreasing issue, I would say. I mean, you know, most of the companies that we're putting cadets on ships with now very much are focused on connectivity for the vessels. And some of these ships have very, very capable high-speed internet connections. And that's becoming more mainstream and it's happening very, very quickly. The rate of change in the last few years to have better connectivity on the ships has been, you know, exceptional. And we are seeing, as you know, you're recruiting a young person, that is exactly what they want to know that the ship has. It's one of the first questions. How's the internet? How's the food? It's definitely a decreasing issue. And there's a commercial reason to do this as well, you know, as, as well as attracting and retaining the right people. 
companies want the vessels to be connected. They want the they want the analytics. They want the information coming back from the ships. Often they want to be in that constant contact. So it's something that we're seeing as less of an issue, but something that we, we do expect and that students expect. I think we need to be really careful with it as well, though. I was recently on a vessel that was exceptionally well connected. Um, it had the one of these new systems which gives you beyond 4G connectivity almost anywhere in the world. And as a bit of a reverse effect, what I actually witnessed on that vessel was with a, a ship with 40 people on it. During their downtime, most of them were in their cabin because they were able to stream Netflix and other things. Kind of lose this social element. And I'm a wee bit worried that actually we end up with more isolation on board if we're not careful because of the really high levels of connectivity that individuals will have in their cabins. And that could be yeah, very isolating on the ship. I think the, the social element on the vessel is really, really critical to having a really successful operation. So um, making sure that we don't lose that while this connectivity improves dramatically is, is actually also uh, really important. So we need to see how that plays out over the next few years as watching Netflix in your cabin becomes more and more of an option. Yeah, I can see that uh, in terms of the, the social interaction on board, that is uh, that is important. But I've also heard that in some companies, seafarers can connect, but they're expected to pay for it. And they may be limited in terms of how long they have per day or, 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 or you know what they can do. Can you comment a bit on that, please? That is true. Internet at sea is, is quite expensive for the companies and then, yeah, sometimes that cost is passed on. What we're again seeing is that, that as the technology becomes much more available, the costs are coming down, which is being passed on to seafarers. We're a management company. Um, we provide services to multiple companies, and we do see across that there's there's a very you know there's a range of companies that will provide completely free access through to charged access. But what what's becoming more and more prevalent is companies will make sure that seafarers have access to messaging apps, uh, Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp, um, other social medias, anytime free consistently. And then if you want to go on and do higher data usage things like download movies or whatever then that comes with a cost and that purely is a reflection of how that impacts the company so i think we're seeing again those costs change we're seeing the the prices come down for the companies for the individuals we're seeing more availability to free connectivity through some apps and we're seeing more companies move to having fully available free connectivity on board so it does it does depend on the company the systems that are on the vessels at the minute Sometimes that changes it as well. If you know, as you move from one platform to another, the costs change. The companies make different decisions. So it's definitely a, again a really improving scene, and it's something that's going to take just a little bit of time to work through as these changes happen for vessels that are being dry docked and things. You know, a new build comes out with all of this already there, but an older vessel as they go through for their dry docks and, and get upgrades and things, that's when you start to see more of this come through. So we're leaps ahead of where we were maybe even five years ago. Well, it's uh, it's good to know that uh, the situation is improving. That, that's encouraging. But the supply of seafarers is actually worsened by the fact that many experienced hands want to come ashore. So, you know, all those experienced guys, you're losing those people. So what steps can be taken to ease this pattern of migration and encourage people to stay at sea? Yeah, it's a really interesting one for us because... We're involved in the training of the individuals and then they go on to be employed by the companies that they're, they're training with in, in lots of cases and sometimes they go off to other companies. So we're, we're not directly involved in some of the issues or some of the challenges that the companies will be facing with, with trying to retain people. But 
when it comes back to that, how does Clyde Marine make sure that somebody is set up for a career at sea? The primary thing is cadets are trained to be seagoing officers. The risk in that is there's so many transferable skills in a seafarer. Deck, engine, ETO, it doesn't really matter which discipline you take. The demand for your skills both on a ship and ashore in the organisations that manage those ships or that are involved in it in any other part of the industry, the, the demand is huge. There's, there's such, a, such a drive. We're also seeing that the um, pressure to make sure that the training programs reflect the, the, the broader skills, and, and that's been resisted. We've made sure that the training program very much reflects what a seafarer is expected to do in their capacity on board a vessel. But the other thing that's been worked on quite extensively, and particularly in the UK with the MCA, and, and, and it's actually something that's going to go to the IMO as part of the STCW revision, as a very comprehensive review of the training syllabus to make sure that it's massively up to date, that it is reflecting all the modern technologies that we want to see cadets qualify with a knowledge of and, and an understanding of. But it ties into future training. It ties into the training that you need for your chief mates, for your second engineers, your masters, or your chief engineers. And we're making sure that that bridge, that pathway is very clear, very easy to do. Easy in the sense that you can go through these steps as soon as you meet the requirements. The courses themselves aren't easy. Let's be clear, it's, it's a very, there's some very challenging academic areas that a seafarer has to understand to get a chief mate's uh, master's license or, or whatever. But um, making sure that the, the process to go and get senior licenses for our industry is as simple as it can be and that it all maps through and that that does tie to shore-based qualifications if somebody needs it because that is why some companies train people. So it's healthy to have an element of migration from people of people from ship to shore, but we need to make sure, like you're saying, that we get the balance. You know, the, the average tenure now of a UK seafarer from qualification is, is now only seven years. So they stay at sea for seven years. If you go back, historically, that, that's been as high as 22 years as the average tenure at sea. So we're seeing a massive shift to people coming ashore much sooner. Connectivity will help with that. But yeah, as far as the training programs go, as far as what CMT controls and what we're involved in, we've done a lot to try and make sure that the process to move up through the ranks on board is as smooth as it can be from a training perspective. Right. You mentioned at the beginning that shipping always gets in the news for the for the wrong reasons. And the maritime business, you know, generally has a poor press. Is this a hindrance to recruitment or do the guys and girls who are joining you, are they already well aware of the shipping's fundamental use? In other words, it's the main source of world trade. No, it's, it's, it's absolutely a hindrance. We spend hundreds of thousands of pounds a year advertising the industry and the benefits of the industry. And those people that, that are seeing those ads come through and apply for positions. We interview them and during that interview process, we're always, it's engaging. We're asking them what they think, what their concerns are. And these high profile incidents are what you get from them. Oh, this happens, that happens. What are the chances that'll happen to me? or a ship that I'm on, you know, we invest quite a lot of time trying to overcome that because I didn't know about this industry when I started. I was a, a Clyde Marine training cadet. I then became a Clyde Marine training client and then came on to, to run Clyde Marine training as general manager. But when I first came across it, I really didn't know anything about the industry. I grew up in a coastal town, but my awareness of how you would become a, a licensed officer on one of the Stenaline ferries that operated, you know, just a, a few minutes from my house, was, was non-existent. So when I came into it, I had all of these really naive, misinformed concerns. 
and it would have put me off had it not been for some just very good people telling me about the positive sides and the opportunities and I've then gone on, you know, now I've, I've, I've lived in other countries, I've had lots of travel, I've experienced all of the things that I was promised. It would never have happened though and I would never have had those opportunities had it not been for somebody taking the time to make me aware. I'm now the biggest advocate for that. It is one of the most diverse, exciting, challenging industries that I think you can work in. I really think any young person benefits from coming into this industry. It offers so much. But we are just constantly coming up against the bad news stories. So I, I, I just put that to anybody in our industry that's speaking about our industry to any young person. Put the put the, the true picture across. Don't don't sugarcoat it because that sets somebody up for a fail as well. But put out the positives. Put out what you've had in your career, what your experiences were, what were good. Tell them about the bad. Prepare them for it. But the bad things don't define us as an industry. Too often, as far as what coverage is concerned is the things that you know the bad things are the things that define us so we need to get away from that and and that's incumbent on everybody in the industry to push the positive well there's one particular issue which has been in the news lately and that is the fact that depending on whose statistics you use only about two to four percent of the uh, world seafaring population are female what is it like in the recruitment sector? How many females are interested in going to sea? And are you taking steps to boost these numbers? And if so, what are you doing? This is really important to me. You're right, it depends on the measure that you go by, but 2 to 4% I think is generous. We work with the Global Marine Forum and a recent study from the All Aboard Alliance, which is, is, is doing some work to address this, and I'll, I'll tell you about it in a moment. But a recent study from them shows that the number is, is could be as low as 1.2% of seafarers are female. And very interestingly, of that 1.2%, 94% of them are on cruise ships or ferries, other passenger vessels. So only 6% of 1.2% of females at sea are on cargo vessels or other traditional deep sea vessels. That's a horrifying number. Now, how do we deal with it? We need to look back all the way to school. A cadet ship at the minute, if you want to apply for a, a deck engine ETO cadet ship, we look for maths and physics as standard subjects to come into those courses. That's important because the courses require an element of mathematical ability and understanding of some, some good physics principles. Um, so you need that there. You need to have these minimum requirements. But what we know is that if we go back to 12-year-olds who are picking subjects for secondary school, significantly fewer females choose physics as a subject than males do. So way back then, we lose about 40% of the potential female applicants from our industry. Then come through to a little bit later and look at the secondary, so the, 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 the kind of next level of education that's required these in the UK A-levels, we would call them. The numbers there are, are, are even more bleak. You end up down 15 to 20% of, of women are taking a higher in, or an A-level, sorry, in, in physics. So from as young as 12, we're ruling half the working population of women, half the people out of a cadetship. So there's something very systemic that we need to address there, and that's something that we've been working on with schools, trying to raise the awareness, the education. But then for the people that do make it through and the people that do choose those subjects, particularly the women that choose those subjects, we are then competing with every other STEM subject to get the right person in and I would say we're even more challenging because we're asking for not just somebody to go to college or university and study 
but also for within that that person to have quite a large degree of travel and upheaval while they while they go on to this 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 career. So we, we expect quite a lot. That makes it really difficult. So so one is we need to address the the schooling. We need to address the the intake requirements and make sure that they're as equitable as they can be and that they're as fair as they can be. But then the next thing is how do we make sure that being at sea is an attractive and a safe place to work for, for women at sea. And that's where we, you know, re recruiting women is one thing, but keeping them at sea is another, making sure that we've got adequate policies around maternity and paternity leave, but maternity leave to, to make sure that, that we have a process for them to come back to shipping after they've had their babies. Medical requirements and stuff are quite restrictive at the minute, and there's, there's reasons for that, but we need, to, we need to make sure that we're looking at that. We need to make sure that we're considering the environment on board and making sure that it's it is a safe place to be. The, the All Aboard Alliance, which I mentioned earlier, is running a pilot project at the minute, and that's because these numbers are so bad. So the pilot project is looking to provide a guidance document which will tell us about tangible measures that we can take, tangible changes that you can make on a ship to make it a safer, better working environment for females. And it will actually improve it for men as well, but there's, there's a number of criteria in there in Northern Marine Group and Stena, so the, 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 the parent companies, have actually put a vessel forward for this pilot. It's something that we're very heavily engaged in. There'll be a minimum of four females on that ship. We're aiming for 30% of the crew on a tanker to be female for the pilot. There'll be a number of other changes around making sure that they've got the right access to the right facilities in the vessel. And over the course of 12 months, there'll be measurements taken from that ship to see if it performs better and to see what lessons we can get from the females that are on around what we can do to make sure that they stay at sea and thrive at sea um, in, a, in a more in a better balanced environment. So, so there's a lot being done there. Going back to something else that you asked in the question, what are the current numbers of females? So we, in the cadet training side, when we're recruiting, because if we don't improve the number of female cadets, we're not going to improve the number of female officers. That they, they, They're hand-in-hand, hand, the link that starts with the cadet ship. So to, to move the needle on this, we are trying to set some pretty big targets around the recruitment of female officers. We're currently at 15%. 15% of our cadets are female, which is still shockingly low. We need to improve that. But 15% is where we're at. We're hoping to be at 25% in the next few years and then continue to grow from there. It will reach a natural balance somewhere, but we need to continue to set targets to increase the numbers. And then the next part is making sure that we retain them. And, and hopefully the All Aboard Alliance project, there's nine vessels in that pilot, we have one. Hopefully we'll get some good output from that that enables us to make changes that make sure that we, we retain these women at sea. My next question actually is about sustainability, really, because young people today are increasingly concerned about the planet and, and what we're doing to it. And sources of energy is, uh, is high on their agenda. So new sectors of shipping are developing fast. I'm thinking here of offshore wind, for example. Do you find that uh, in, in, your, in the recruitment process, people, youngsters are interested in pursuing seafaring careers that relate to, for example, offshore wind? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, we are seeing that to a point. But um, I, I yesterday, um, we were very fortunate. We hosted our client conference. And for the client conference, we, we bring our clients from all over the world to Glasgow. We bring some cadets to the conference as well. And we bring education, um, so the academia providers, to the conference. And we have some really open and frank discussions about 
many of the challenges in the industry, some that we've spoken about here. And then one of the things that came up around the recruitment of, of individuals was their expectations uh, around environmental challenges. And one of the trainees that was there was recruited, I think, 12 months ago. They're, they're just going into the third phase of their training. They observed that they wanted to work for a company that was that had a, a long-term future, that was sustainable, but that part of what they saw in that was that that was, that was a gas company. Uh, they specifically asked to be in a gas tanker. They wanted to make sure that they were you know, they, they were realistic that low carbon was the interim measure to zero carbon and that there was a future for these vessels and, and a future place for people to sail on them. And that was really encouraging because what we need to make sure is that we can still service the fleets that we have, which are providing the energy that we need today, but that we're working towards a sustainable solution or a sustainable outcome. Now, most companies that we're working with are looking at low carbon fuels, alternatives to the fuels that they've currently got. And that has a massive impact on the training. And it does impact on the recruitment as well, because the cadets that are coming to us, it's like you say, young people are very, very keen to make sure that they're going somewhere that's sustainable, that's doing the right thing and is, is demonstrating the right behaviours when it comes to their environmental commitments. And the question is always asked, but there's, there's a, a huge opportunity for the trainees as well if they can get experience in these areas so offshore wind is one that's one of the areas we're actually seeing huge demand from at the minute but the other is being trained effectively in low carbon fuels uh, methanol uh, lng ammonia um others like battery power and things you know we're seeing evolution in the training requirements for etos um, to make sure that they can properly maintain and operate 100 percent battery powered vessels so what we're actually there's two parts to this. One was how do we make sure that we recruit in this environment and we answer these questions honestly? Yeah, that, that's really important. And as long as we're talking about these things and we're doing these things and we are seeing that come through, then that gets us past the first part that the cadets, you know, comfortable that they're in a sustainable and concerned industry with the environment. But the, the next is then how we make sure that they are trained to drive forward the change that's going to be required to get to net zero. So the individuals are not only interested in knowing that the company are doing something about it, they're interested in knowing that they can contribute to that. They want to know that they'll be trained and how to operate a vessel that does have low carbon fuels. So a marine engineer needs to know how to operate a traditional diesel fueled vessel, but they need to know as well now how to operate a vessel that might have dual fueled or be transitioning at some point to methanol and then further to that what the next transition will be in as an industry we haven't really landed on what that next source will be we're still toying with methanol and ammonia and things we're seeing lots of companies commit to different things so yeah young people are very concerned with it they want to know that companies do the right thing they want to know they can contribute to it i think we need to stay ahead of that we need to make sure that we're consistently offering them that and, and that is happening Great. Well, Thomas, thank you so much for your time today. It's really interesting uh, discussion and some very thought-provoking uh, comments there from you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Paul. It was a pleasure. Really appreciate it. All the best, then. Thanks. Thank you.